displayed there. We're doing a series that I'm calling Defeated. Now, why do I call it Defeated? Well, first of all, we are not going to be doing a series on a particular book this year. We'll be looking more kind of at at different sort of topics throughout the semester. And one of the things that I want to draw to your attention is the language of what's called a defeater belief. And you're going, what in the world is a defeater belief? Well, I don't know how many of you have ever had doubts about Christianity. I don't know how many of you have them presently. It's okay if you do. This is the place for you, a place for you to process those questions and those doubts. Um, But I want you to know that this series is going to tackle some of the things that we believe and how they inhibit a more robust embracing of Jesus. Does that make sense? The things that we're kind of thinking holding on to mentally, cognitively, and how they almost get in the way of us believing more robustly and loving Jesus from the heart. And that's not just for somebody who might call themselves a non-Christian, but you're going to find out if you're a non-Christian tonight, I, I hope that this series really helps you out because we're going to tackle some things that a lot of Christians don't want to talk about. Like tonight, we're going to talk about, can I really trust the Bible? So if you're a non-Christian or if you have non-Christian friends, I'm hoping that this semester will be a place where you would feel safe to bring them. I'm going to try to protect your relationships with your friends to not make you look stupid. Okay? But also, this is also a place, if you're a Christian, and you just have a gajillion questions that you want to wrestle through, and that you, like for example, aren't I supposed to just be high on Jesus all my life? That aren't I just supposed to be on like, like, isn't that what a Christian is? Some of y'all think that. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about that this semester. Think about it like this. In the Gospel of Mark, there's a part where a man says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And that man was a follower of Jesus. How many of you have a category in terms of being a Christian that allows you room for unbelief Doubt and questions. I'm telling you, if you're a Christian, it's part of your makeup. It's part of your makeup. And that's what we're going to look at this semester. So why the language defeated? Well, if you're in the field of philosophy, if you like philosophy, or if you like a subfield of philosophy called epistemology, you would know this term, that when we believe things, there are certain beliefs, A, that make belief be impossible to believe. So, to make fun of it, frogs are going to win a national championship this year. Somebody says, no they're not. You go, I don't believe you. Because why? I believe the frogs are going to be national championships this year, champions this year. So when somebody says this, like this, it just goes boom and bounces off. And you don't believe it. That happens all the time all of the time with our beliefs about God. And those beliefs that we hold that make a more robust embracing of Jesus harder are what we call defeater beliefs. And so each week, we're going to be looking at one more defeater belief. Does that make sense? Everybody kind of following? 
That's the series overview. I can't go into that much depth every week, so you're going to have to tell your friends. Listen to the podcast. I hope John is taping it right now. That would really stink. But that's what we're going to look at. And this week, we're going to look at... You can go to the next slide. We're going to look at... um, Can I trust the Bible? Can I trust the Bible? On a campus like TCU, this question gets asked all the time. All the time. What do I do with the Bible? And I want to suggest to you that without any sort of further ado and now uh, going into illustration or whatsoever, I just want to suggest to you that you that you can trust the Bible. It doesn't mean you have to, but that you are able to. It makes sense to trust the Bible on three particular grounds. First, because of what it says about God. Secondly, because of what it says about people. And thirdly, because of what it says about you. What it says about God, people, and then lastly, you. What do I mean when I say that you can trust the Bible because of what it says about God? Well, if you've got your Bible there, look at me. Look at this with me. Have you noticed there in chapter 24 and verses 13, you'll see the word, look at this, it goes, and they were going to a village named Emmaus. Then hop down to verse 18. Then one of them's name was Cleopas. And then if you go down to, um, let's see here, I'm trying to find the other little verse. Yeah, yeah, for example, verse 21, it was the third day. Verse 22, they were at the tomb early in the morning. Then you get mentioning of, the, of Jerusalem, and you get mentioning of a town called Nazareth. What in the world is going on here with Luke, who is writing this? If you're wondering, didn't you just preach this a year ago? Yes, I did. I just preached this a year ago. Not the same way, different, te- I mean, different sermons, so you're getting your money's worth. Um, here is what I mean. I want you to know that many of the defeater beliefs that people hold have to do with what the Gospels say about their historicity. People are saying, what? What are you talking about? I mean, did it happen in real space and time? Here's what most people think about Jesus. I can't do this right now because I can't float. But most people think that Jesus sort of hovered on top of the ground, about six inches off the ground his entire life. And like he never smelled and he just sort of, he was God. And he was white and he had blonde hair and he had blue eyes. And then he had, you see my point is, is that like that sort of Jesus is absolutely not the Jesus that you get of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible in the Gospels is intimately connected with real life. He, make it more he wore sandals, he got dirt underneath his toenails. That's how real it was. And what I want to suggest to you is that right now that Luke is telling you by saying... Cleopas, Emmaus, Nazareth, early in the morning. He is giving you eyewitness testimony about what has happened. And what has happened in real time and space. Most people do that. Sorry, I'm a little technical. Most people say this. Biblical history is over here. Real life history is over here. Alexander the Great, Abraham Lincoln over on this side, and then like Jesus, Abraham, and all the other dudes in that book that I don't really pay attention to over here. 
The Bible says, eh, take this, take this, put them together. That's what it is. It happens in real history. That's what this is saying about God. Now, what do I mean? Think about it like an illustration. The new TV series, Once Upon a Time, shows us that our culture loves this idea of fairy tales or uh, whatever you would call Snow White. What is Snow White? Somebody help me. Would it be a fairy tale? Okay, fair enough. I'm on. Let's keep going. But you would say this. There's a big difference between the story of Snow White. I hope she's the one that got kissed. She's the one that ate the apple. Okay, thank you. She was asleep. Big difference between you saying that actually happened and the shooting of JFK. You would say fairy tale happened in history. And I would say, why? Well, everybody knows that's a fairy tale, Ryan. I would say, that's fine, but how do you know that JFK's assassination wasn't a fairy tale? Well, because we have eyewitness accounts. There was cameras that shot it. And I said, yeah, but you weren't there. You didn't see it. And in fact, if that's the case, I shouldn't even be born because you, didn't, you weren't even alive to see me be born. I know I'm being ridiculous. What's my point? I'm trying to say to you, just because your eyes didn't see it doesn't mean that it did not happen. Does that make sense? You know this all the time, and you, you can't live life like that. You can't live life saying, well, I didn't see it, so it didn't happen. And what I'm trying to say is, is that most people who have objections to the Bible say something like that. And I just want to simply suggest that maybe that's a faulty understanding about way, the way to view history. Does that make sense? Secondly, another group of people will say that they have an opposite, I'm going to my point about God. But the other point is they want to say is, yeah, Ryan, but the Bible itself, it's not meant to be history. So now we have a question of genre. Hang in there. Isn't it really just a legend? Isn't this stuff made up about people from the post, like after Jesus walked on the earth, or this guy named Jesus, or these communities around the Mid-Eastern, Middle Eastern, they, uh, I mean the Mediterranean, they wanted to create a community of belief, and so they wrote these stories sort of after the fact, and they got passed down through oral tradition, and so on and so forth. And isn't that how we got the Gospel of Matthew? So therefore, isn't it really just a legend of some sort? And I want to say to you, that's not really right to think about that either. Here's why. The genre itself of sort of historical narrative like that, like Luke is in our case, to sort of label it as legend or fairy tales simply wasn't on the scene at all. It didn't exist as a genre. Listen to what one Oxford scholar, C.S. Lewis, mentions. He taught English and he wrote about this specifically. He says, I have been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, and myths all my life. I know what they're like. I know none of them that are like this. Of this gospel text, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage, which just means reporting of history, or else some, this is awesome, some unknown ancient writer without known predecessors or known successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern, novelistic, realistic narrative. 
That's what has to be the case if one is going to maintain that this book, especially these accounts, are fictitious. Now you can hold that, and that's fine. I'm just saying, this is what Christians, this is like uber-Christian scholarship that's thought through this stuff. Now, what does that mean? What does all of this mean? Back to our point. What does it say about God? Jesus Himself is saying that, look with me in the verse there when it says, that don't you know that all of these things were spoken of, that the heart of the, sorry, that foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken in verse 25. He is basically getting at the fact that there was a whole trajectory, a whole storyline. What is that storyline? It's right here in the Old Testament, the white part of your Bible that you're scared to look at. That's what Jesus is talking about. And He's saying that there's a story there. And that story is the one of a God who loves His people. It comes to rescue them. And it's me who is doing the rescuing right here and now. And what I want you to walk away with with what it says about God is very simply this, that it happened in real history. And that is why you can trust it. Secondly, you can trust what it says about God because, I mean, you can trust what it says because of what it says about people. What does the Bible say about people? It tells us this. Ready? This is kind of hard to swallow. That there will always be parts of the Bible that don't sit well with us. Hang on. I'm going to come back to that. It will, in a sense, at some point, contradict you. In short, it tells us that we are not right about everything on every topic. Think about it like this. One of the major problems that many folks, religious and secular, have with the Gospels is that they contain accounts of miracles. Of course, the whole Bible does too. And they reason miracles don't exist, so the Bible can't be trusted. Now, you have to understand that this objection is really one about metaphysics, not about the text itself. It has to do with the way that one sees the world. Either it's completely natural, what you see is all there is, or it's both natural and supernatural. That there is what the eye can see and what it can't. And so, since the Bible contains the supernatural, it can't be trusted as historically reliable. Think about the man on the road to our text. In our text, these two men had known Jesus. And a few days ago, they had heard of His death. Their hopes were crushed. Their dreams dashed. They didn't have a category for a Messiah who would die. And yet, that is exactly what the Old Testament foretold. You can go to Isaiah 52 and 53 to read about it if you want. And so, when it happened, they didn't know how to make sense of it. It was outside of their sphere of plausibility. Do you know what I mean by sphere of plausibility? Think about it like this. I have a friend of mine who was in, a, he was in the military. Oh, a friend of a friend, so I'm just going to call him my friend. And he was in Afghanistan, a special forces sort of guy. And they're out doing a raid trying to get some bad dudes. And his job was they took all the women and the children and put them in a safe place. And the kids are going crazy screaming. And he's going, what do I do? So the only thing he knows to do is he says, oh, 
I've got those glow sticks that you crack and you throw out so the helicopters can kind of see where you land. So he starts pulling these things out of his pocket, cracking them open and passing them out to the kids because he knows my kids, my five-year-olds, love glow sticks. Whips them out, starts cracking them open. The kids go berserk. They start screaming all the more because they don't know if this thing's a bomb about to go off or what. Why? Somebody tell me. Why were they going crazy? They didn't know what it was. They had no idea that it was just a glow stick. The fact that it was something fun was outside of their sphere of plausibility. And what I'm saying about this is, is that the people on the road to Emmaus had no room for understanding a God that would disagree with their present mental categories. Listen, in a day and age, this, in our day and age, this happens too. People say, you can't trust the Bible because of its seemingly socially regressive view of women or of sexuality or of money or of personhood. Sure, it might be a great book on how to engender morals, but it can't be accepted as accurate history. Well, may I suggest this? One man wrote a book called The Reason for God. His name was Tim Keller, who I base a lot of this stuff off of. Notes that the Bible, I love this phrase, is an equal opportunity offender. It offends everybody. What do I mean? I mean, the book is going to say at some point, this one right here, if it's really true, it's going to offend culture's view everywhere. Everywhere. You see, here's what I mean. Do you know that if you're someone who doesn't believe the Bible on the grounds that it tells of the supernatural, do you know that people in other parts of the world, just as educated as you, have no problems with the supernatural? Go talk to educated people in some parts of Africa or educated people in some parts of the Far East, and they're going to go, Supernatural in the Bible? No big whoop. No problem. i got other problems with it, but no big whoop. Here's what I'm saying is, the problem that you have, if this is really a thing of yours, is that you're actually more of a product of your culture than you would ever imagine. You're Western, and you're a product of the Enlightenment that doesn't like miracles. But just because they don't like them doesn't mean that they didn't happen. And that's something that the Bible will constantly throw back to us to have to consider. So, what is this saying? Listen to what Mark Twain, Samuel Clemens once said. It's not the part of the Bible that I don't understand that troubles me. It's the parts of the Bible that I do understand. And if truth be told, most of us, including myself, don't like the Bible at times. Not because it supposedly contradicts itself. Are you ready? But because it contradicts me. And if I'm honest, if Ryan is honest, I most dislike the Bible where it confronts me, where it confronts my way of life that must be changed because I follow Jesus. The Bible gives us ethics, y'all, and these ethics are binding on people for, the, for their good, to be sure. So in an upside-down way, are you ready? You can trust the Bible because it contradicts you. Because see, when you have a Bible that contradicts you, you can be sure that you don't have a Bible that agrees with everything that you think. And if you have a Bible 
that doesn't agree with everything that you think, you actually have a God that doesn't agree with everything you think. And that, my friends, is a really good sign. Because it means that you're not dealing with a God of your own making who what? Is no God at all. Is as worthless as these set of keys. So you can take courage because of what it says about people. Lastly, what it says about you. And then we're going to wind down. Here is the point that Jesus wants to make. Verses 25 and 26, He says, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all of the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. The point here is that Jesus is saying that I, me, Jesus, have come to rescue sinners. All that Moses and prophets, if you read the Old Testament, it is about a God that has made a world. That He's made it for His people whom He loves. And He has made it for them to enjoy. And then something awful happens. Sin enters that world. And as it does, it reaches into every corner of creation, every corner of the cosmos, right down to your heart, right down to my heart, and it tears it apart. And yet God, in His great love for us, has promised that He will not abandon His plan to love His people. And so, He sends a Son, a Rescuer, to go do just that. And there He is in that text, doing, having done, just that. Why can you trust the Bible? It's because it's telling you that you are worth dying for. Even in the midst of all your craziness, even in the midst of all of your partying, in the midst of all your hooking up, whatever it might be, fill in the blank. And Jesus is saying, I got that one too. I'm coming after you because I love you. Because I enjoy you. Because I will not quit you. I shared this illustration a year ago and I'm going to share it again. I want to tell you about a novelist, a British novelist. Her name was Dorothy Sayers. She was a mystery writer. And she wrote mystery novels. And one of the books that she wrote was the Peter Whimsey mystery novel series. Now, Sayers, the author, was a graduate of Oxford, one of the first to graduate from Oxford. Now, what about this story? He, Peter Whimsey, was a single, upper echelon, Sherlock Holmes type of detective. And one day in the series of novels, a woman shows up in the story, and her name is Harriet Vane. Well, Harriet and Peter began to sort of fall in love with one another. But what was Harriet's story? Harriet was someone who wrote mystery novels. She was one of the first women to graduate from Oxford. 
And people who know Dorothy Sayers know what she's done. She's fallen in love with her character. And so she's written herself into the story to love him back. And I want to suggest to you that what has happened fictitiously in those Peter Whimsy stories has happened in real life in this story. That God Himself in the person of Jesus Christ has written Himself into the story of history because of His incredible heart, love, and desire for you. This book, this story of Christianity is not a story about how if I try hard enough, then God will love me. No. It is from page one to page whatever. A story about a God who knows that you can't be good enough. And so He comes to you. He is the God that comes and takes ugly, broken people and doesn't ask them to clean up, but loves them and makes them beautiful. That's what He does. And I'm telling you this, when you begin to get a hold of that in your heart and in your life, your heart, like the two men on the road to Emmaus, will begin to burn. It will begin to burn because you see afresh how much God really loves you. Listen, I'm glad that you are here. I love it. And I want you to know that RUF is a place for you to come. To come ask your questions, express your doubts, to be in community, to get to know one another. So please, feel free to come back anytime. We're going to go hang out at Central Market tonight if you want to come go with us. I hope you'll plan on it. I'm going to pray.